Hey everybody, thank you for listening. I just want to give a quick update about the podcast for anyone who's been following over the past couple months. Sometimes you may have heard me refer to this podcast as an experiment, and uh, recently in my discussion with Dr. Barnard, I kind of showed my hand a little bit regarding what I've been hoping to accomplish with this podcast. Experiment really is the right way to think about this. Um, First of all, podcast technology is really new, and it has not plateaued yet. Secondly, what I've been trying to do with this podcast, using global tech to support local community, I don't know anyone who's trying this. Um, Now, I've been very surprised by how many people seem to find value in these recorded conversations. I'm getting a remarkable number of private encouragements. Uh, People are changing their day-to-day lives based on what they're learning from each other through this podcast, and people are asking me what they can do to help. So I'm surprised, I'm grateful, and I'm trying to stay a couple steps ahead of this thing and see where it might be going. For now, I'm going to take social media out of the equation. If the Small Town Podcast is an experiment, then here's a hypothesis. As a support for localism, the podcast should grow just fine through word of mouth. I am not going to post on social media, and I am not going to include links to social media in the show notes. I'm going to see how much this podcast can grow with minimal marketing on my end. Now, what this means is that from now on, people can only find out about the podcast through you. You just became a bigger part of these discussions. So if you find an episode compelling, uh, tell people about it. If you want to share an episode on social media, by all means, go for it. Um, Leaving ratings and reviews is also a big way to participate. Um, And just a a word on that, ratings and reviews may not seem like much, but the algorithms that rank podcasts do it largely through that kind of feedback. So, in other words, the more positive feedback this podcast receives, the more people will see it in their recommendations. Also, uh, because I am no longer associating my own social media accounts with this podcast, I will have a link in the show notes for the official podcast email address in case you'd like to contact me for any reason. And as a side note, this will also enable people outside West Tennessee to get in touch with me more easily, because people are listening from all over the world. At some point in the future, I may have an update for you on how you can support this podcast more directly, but for now, I'm testing its growth. All right. On to today's episode. Everything in the following conversation fits under the question, what value can you draw from studying history? My guest today is not a professional historian, but he is the most qualified person I know to discuss history with, not because of a degree or title, but because of the way he sees the world. This is a living and breathing encounter with the past, and it's way more exciting than a list of cold facts. Ladies and gentlemen, my father, Chris Johnson.
Historius Nestorius. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, gosh. Uh, the, um, Is that how we're starting? <laughs> so Nestorius uh, was considered by uh, some to be heretical, uh, the Nestorian, Nestorian Christianity uh, and, and uh, the early church. And so, um, you know, it's... I was mainly reading about it from the standpoint of I wanted I was interested in seeing how Christianity played out in the Far East because that's really the only version of Christianity that was successful out there long term uh, was that was this, what's called Nestorian Christianity and it's just a and branch of of Christianity that moved into the East uh, and it's associated with Nestorius who was who was a uh, a, a guy who, you know, doctrinally he had some issues, but but um, I, I, I wasn't so much interested in him as I was the, the church in the East. The teaching you know? and the, the tradition? Uh, I was mainly more interested in, in seeing how one, trying to find out how it is that one branch of the church was successful there and others weren't. Gotcha. You know, okay. Catholicism didn't do well there, uh-huh. and... Uh, Neither has Protestantism, you know, but for some reason Nestorianism uh, has done. Has and done this well. is where in the East is this? It's all over. It, it's it, it. It worked in China. Uh, it worked in Mongolia. Uh, it worked in India. Oh, um, so this was like this was a big deal then. Yeah, there was a time it was pretty widespread, and it was competing with Buddhism and other other things there. Huh. Um, but you know, I guess it was sometime in the Middle Ages. The a lot of these Far Eastern countries started clamping down on it, and uh, and so you know they it sort of started kind of dying out. But whatever, it, if there's any old traditional form of Christianity that isn't someone trying to bring Protestantism in, that's what it. That's probably what's there. Like you'll hear about sometimes you'll hear about Chinese countries that have maybe or Chinese cities, excuse me, that have. Uh, um, you know, some really, really old ancient Christian churches, it's more than likely comes from that movement originally, yeah. you know, okay. things like that. So I don't know. It's just something I was interested in yeah. reading a little bit yeah. about. So, Did they interact with the Western church at all? Or? No, they were, they were very uh, secluded and um, they sort of, they sort of, um, um, they sort of evolved on their own uh, separate from Western Christianity. And that's, that's um, one thing that makes them fascinating because they they're kind of a time capsule in a way because of that, and uh, and that's that's kind of neat to see something like that. Um, there were a lot of legends in the Middle East, excuse me, in the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. uh, where um, you know people in the West were aware that this was going on in some form. Uh, you've probably heard of, for instance, the um, the famous. Um, uh, Legends of Prester John. Have you ever heard of Prester John? Maybe. I okay. Don't know. So, the legend of Pres- Prester John is that there was, and this was, this is from the Middle Ages. Okay. Okay. In other words, people in the Middle Ages were believed that there was a Prester John existing in the Far East, and that he was a Christian king. Uh, they believed a very powerful Christian king that um, that was upholding the existence of some form of Christendom in the Far East. And that, so, you know, they were, so the people, of, the Western people in the Middle Ages were, you know, wanting to help him in some way. You know, they they they, they believed they had an ally in the Far East in uh-huh. Prester John. In truth, um, historically, Prester John very well likely didn't exist as an individual. Um, 
he was uh, he was an idea. There were uh, there were leaders that probably were influenced by Christianity in the Far East. Um, one th- there was one particular, and I can't think of the name of it. It's hard to pronounce anyway. But there was one uh, leader that that um, happened to have uh, happened to have invaded a city, an ancient city in Syria that was a Muslim city and uh, conquered the city. And a lot of people in the Middle Ages at that time, particularly in, in you know, in the church at that time in, in the West, uh, you know, if, if you weren't Muslim, well, you must be a Christian. Yeah. And so uh, they kind of associated that as he was probably a Christian king when they heard about that, you know. So um, I'm not exactly sure how the term Prester John came about. I probably have read somewhere, but I can't remember. But... Um, uh, some people uh, believe that he was, uh, and uh, that he, you know, was somebody of apostolic origin, uh, some figure that, you know, some immortal figure. If you want to get into the legends and so forth, yeah. Um, and uh, you know, some people believe that he was just someone that maintained apostolic succession in the Far East somehow in that church. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of. That's kind of what piqued my interest in in Nestorianism because that's really what the church in the Far East was. It was the Nestorian church. So, so if there's a rumor about apostolic succession, then that would mean that the story of Christianity in the East goes back to the apostles. Is it's that believed the... that that uh, Thomas went to India and uh, was the one that sort of started the church in the Far East. Uh, now, how on earth? It got associated with Nestorius. I'm not entirely sure, mm-hmm. but if you hold to the idea that Thomas went to India, you know, a lot of people would say, "Well, that's probably how the uh, the ancient church began." You know, in the Far East, and you know, the remnants of it. So, what do you think about that tradition? About Thomas specifically? Yeah, um, but I mean, the others. It said that the others went pretty far and wide, also. Yeah, I think it's possible. I, I think I don't. I, I think it's possible that some of them made it very far away. Um, but you know, I just don't know yeah. for sure. That's it's not scripture, so you yeah. know, we don't know. Yeah, there are so many different legends sprinkled in mm-hmm. with with the things that we would consider hard facts. That's true. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how do you weed through them? Like, I think I think I remember reading with Thomas. There are stories of him. <coughs> uh, excommunicating dragons from underneath temples and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean there's a lot of mythology that's that's yeah. um you know mingled its way into into um into these legends and and uh so you know you you can you just kind of have to weed through it. I I'm I've never been bothered by the fact that you see a little mythology in some of these things. Um I don't know, it just doesn't it just doesn't alarm me. I just kind of I, to me, it makes it all the more fascinating, yeah. you know, in some ways. Yeah. Um, I think the I think the important thing is, you know, you just um, to to bring it into a more applicable um, applicable ideal here is that you know you just you just want to read it for what it is. You know, it's it's legends. It's, it's um, so you know things like an apostle slaying a dragon or Saint George slaying a dragon or whatever. You want to um, you know, you want to read it as legend, and but it's it's teaching legend. You know, it's it can 
it can inform our views, it can inform our faith even. Um, and that's not a bad thing. You know, on the other hand, it's not Scripture, and that's right. that's uh, it's important to make that distinction. Um, we, it, you know, in my opinion, a believer needs to hold Scripture to a higher regard than than other things, and that's so. That's you know, I would I would I would keep that distinction there at all times. You know, well, that other side of teaching really resonates with me that 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 you can communicate symbolic truth and lessons through mm-hmm. these stories. Sure. It's the Tolkien way of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, people today, if they were if they were recording history, they wouldn't dare sprinkle in legends and, and right. myths along with right. the, along true. with the facts and the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, we have such a different way of looking at history now. I I mean I what do you what do you make of that? That's a good question. I I think that I think that gets to the heart of, and it also kind of maybe a good segue into maybe what you're trying to get to with this podcast a little bit. But but um, I think a lot of it has to do with why people approach history and mm-hmm. why people even may delve into church history and why it may be important. So I'm not uh, a professional historian by any means. I'm I'm just I'm uh, I've pastored um, and I've been an elder at Christ Community for years and am not now and and uh, and so forth. But for years I was, and so um, that uh, Christ Community Church, where the church that uh, that uh, we sort of spent the last uh, decades in, a couple yeah. of decades, yeah, and so. Um, so a lot of a lot of uh, looking into church history came about for me out of a desire to um, learn about uh, early Christian worship and early Christian practices and how they did things. So I think uh, I I say all that to say that I think there's two reasons people tend to to delve into church history. I think the more modern reason and the more common reason nowadays is to approach it from a much more of a binary. Uh, way of looking at things to just look back and find facts and extract them. Right. Uh, and this gets into a broader discussion about history, I think, in general. But but uh, people look into history to extract facts or or things they're looking for, and uh, and a lot of the um, a lot of the the reasons that church history. If you ask someone in academia, a lot of times. Why is church history important? A lot of times the answer you're going to get is because it helps protect the church from heresy. In Orthodox academia, let me say that. Uh, because so much of church history and the writings of the, of the church fathers, the patristics, uh, were about that. It, were, it was about um, that sort of thing. To be perfectly honest with you, uh, because I was uh, had a lot to do with the worship at the church that, uh, that we were at, I... Um, I found myself uh, not looking into church history so much for the teachings about heresy and orthodoxy and so forth. I was much more interested in looking into it from the standpoint of the practices, how they did things, um, how they conducted worship. Um, and, And that's very hard to do because... You really have to weed through a lot of things to get to that, to find yeah. those those things. Um, that said, there's there's a wealth of early church hymns that 
you can glean from. That uh, I did a whole study on early church hymns uh, a few years back, and uh, for instance, um, you know, just Ambrosian hymns alone are uh, is a that's a huge area. You know, there's a lot to a lot to study and and look into there. Ambrose Milan, the Bishop of Milan, he uh, he wrote he wrote early some of the earliest church hymns we have. And um, they're not all all the ones that w- that are attributed to him. It's likely he didn't necessarily write them all, but uh, but we we believe that he did write some of them. Don't we still sing one of his hymns? Um, I, I don't I don't remember. We probably I do. I think there was a, I think there's a hymn around Christmas time. Is it of the Father's love begotten, or is that not Ambrose? Um, you know, I just don't remember okay. right offhand. Okay. Um, I don't. I don't know. We'll have to. We'll have to check that later. I remember seeing his name at some point mm-hmm. in the in the copyright info. Sure. Not yeah. that someone from back then yeah. would, would be copyrighted, <laughs> but I remember looking up an author and his name came up. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Um. So yeah, he uh, he he wrote. He's he was an early Christian hymn writer. So I was very interested in that sort of thing, and what you know early church hymns could teach us and what what we could glean from them, and. Uh, there's information in the Didache pertaining to um, early Christian practices, mm-hmm. practices in the church. There's information in some of the earlier, the really, really earlier patristic writings like First Clement uh, and things like that that kind of delve into things. Uh, and so that was a lot of what I was interested in. I was more interested in that sort of thing than I was more of just the binary fact-finding or, you know, determining even what, what is heretical and what's not, you know. Yeah. Uh, Checking this this particular belief against you know what's orthodoxy, and I, I don't say that to say that that's a bad thing. Um, that's a very good thing, you know, for people to do. It's a good reason to read church history. It's just not it's just not much of the reason that I ever did. Yeah. I, frankly, yeah. one of the biggest reasons I read it is because I just thought it was fascinating. Yeah. You know, I just really uh, enjoyed it, and and uh, it's just reading the story. You know, uh-huh. it's, it's fascinating to me. Well, that's why I wanted to have you on is because you're you're seeing it in terms of the story and mm-hmm. it's something that's uh, maybe this isn't the right way to say it but something that's living and breathing there's mm. there's there's action involved and 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 the effects of what happened in these people's lives continues and to affect us today mm-hmm. um and that's a much more exciting way of looking at history yeah it can be uh, the downside is that you tend to see history from a broader with a in a broader spectrum okay. and yeah. you you know if you're if it's important to you to try to remember dates it's not a good way to read it um i don't remember dates very well and so i wouldn't make a good modern historian for that reason but um but in terms of just the overall reading it as as the overall story of it and the movements and the people and the writings and gleaning you know information like that that's that's what i'm interested in yeah yeah mm-hmm. okay so you've looked into uh <clears throat> church traditions in the in the in the east where else have you looked in your journeys through history well i'll give some examples um so you know at uh it, the last few years i guess about 10 10 to 15 years ago i started really getting into into the patristics and the church fathers and reading them and, uh, Not the Reformation fathers. Correct. This would be the the early church fathers. Yeah, the apostolic fathers and and the first ones... few centuries, correct. first couple centuries. Right. Mm-hmm. 
basically the church fathers up to the Council of Nicaea. And then, the, and Which then was three twenty-five. Three twenty-five. Okay. And then um, the first, the first one anyway. I think there was more than one. But then, uh, then there were, um, there are some church fathers after that that I'm that I have studied more in depth too. But um, so some of the really early writings, you know, I was interested in seeing. Okay, you know, do we have anything that is uh, contemporary with? With um, some of the apostles that that that's not necessarily in Scripture, and the answer is yes, very very much so. Um, the Didache is a good example. The Didache was probably written in the first century, and uh, and it's it's a fascinating read. and And so this is probably something you already know, but um, your listeners might not. But the um, the Didache was lost for um, centuries and centuries. No one. It, People knew of it that it had existed because there were other writers that referenced it, and there were excerpts and their writings of it from it. But it was lost, and then it was found, I believe, in the 19th century um, in Ethiopia. Of the, course, it was Ethiopia. Of course, yeah. They found the document in Ethiopia, and uh, and so they were able to translate it back into you know, or translate it into a, a language that they uh, that you know other readers could read. It was translated into English and other languages. Mm-hmm. So um, so this was, you know, this book was found after all this time, and, and uh, this ancient book. And and it, it, to me, what's fascinating is how, how much of what was uh, prescribed in that book has remained throughout the history of the church. Um, you know, in terms of practices, I mean, it goes into baptism and things like that, and um, you know, it really gets into into some things that uh, baptism and and um, the Eucharist, taking of the Lord's Supper, uh, talks about these matters. There's other parts of it that pertain to things like uh, determining false prophets and false teachers and so forth, or false apostles, but. Um, and that you know that's something that was more of a problem at that time mm-hmm. maybe than now at least taking them into your home uh, that that was specifically what you know what was going on was where these false teachers would go around and and would say they were you know Christian teachers and needing some lodging or you know to come into a home get some food things like that uh, and so uh, obviously we we you know determining what's right and what's wrong is still an issue today in hearing things and what's correct and what's incorrect. So you know, even that still has, still has great value. But um, but I just found it fascinating how how much things haven't changed. Yeah, you know, yeah. over the centuries, and uh, of course, you know, historically, um, it's it's very it's so early that it 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 almost to me now now. A Catholic listener might not like what I'm about to say, and I don't mean it in, in any sort of offensive way. But, but um, to me, because uh, it it predated even Constantine, uh, the Constantinian shift had not taken place, and so you don't have a lot of the you don't have a lot of the trappings that the Catholicism brought throughout the the subsequent centuries. And so, you know, in many ways, it it looks more like a, it looks almost more like more 
Protestant because of that. I would make that. I would say that, but that's only because the things as Catholicism developed, um, you know, it hadn't gotten. It was it was earlier than all that, you know, and so it was very much of an, an early document. More bare bones. Yeah, exactly. More bare bones. Just the essentials. Correct. Yeah. It might be worth pointing out that Didache. I don't think you meant. Did you mention what it means? What the name means? Didache. It just means teaching. Yes. The teaching. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, no, I didn't point that out. So it's it's almost like a like a church manual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that's it's right. it's like for for a small community starting a church. Well, what is a church? What does that look like? This is the first generation of uh-huh. believers in the area. Right. So they've got this document to go off of. Sure. Uh-huh. Um, I thought it might be fun to read part of it. I've yeah, got it here. Yeah, go for it. Um, so here's the part about baptism. You mentioned that. Mm-hmm. So this is cool to me because there are so many fights about baptism. Mm-hmm. Do you sprinkle? Do you dunk? <laughs> you do it in a river? All right, so here we go. Now concerning baptism, baptize as follows. After you have reviewed all these things, and I guess by these things it just means the theological teachings that it set up until this point, Baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit in running water. But if you have no running water, then baptize in some other water. But if you're not able to baptize in cold water, then do so in warm. <laughs> but if you have neither, then pour water on the head three times in the name of Father, <laughs> Son, and Holy Spirit. And I think Covers that's it awesome, all. because yeah, uh-huh. it gets the priorities straight. Right. You right. know, it, it almost, it, it, it foresees that people are going to fight about this. Right. And so uh-huh. it writes down, okay, this is what matters. Correct. Um, yeah. Did you did you read, did you take note of the part where it said the, the very last thing you read? In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Uh-huh. So this is before the word Trinity was ever invented. Correct. And yeah. and so you're you're talking about a document from the first century of, of the Christian church. Yeah. And it's already, so, you know, if, if anybody tells you that the concept of the Trinity in terms of what, what that word means, is a later addition or a later concept to the faith that, that came about later. It's ab- This is pure evidence that that's not true. Uh, th- yeah, well, it also validates it in the Gospels when Jesus says, baptize in the name of the Father and mm-hmm. Son and Holy Spirit. Yeah, absolutely. This is evidence that people didn't go back in later and change it. Right, that's right, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, you have it in these early documents, and so uh, make no mistake, uh, the, the Trinity, so what if we don't, don't see the word Trinity. The concept of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, was was there from the get go. It mm-hmm. was there, and we we know that we have proof of that. I mean, in these early documents. Yeah. So you know, it's yeah. just to me that's fascinating. Yeah. So this book um, that I'm holding is just a little green hardback book called The Apostolic Fathers. Mm-hmm. Michael Holmes. Yeah, it's got the Greek on one side and English on the other. Mm-hmm. The Didache is only one of multiple books in here. So. There's, uh, I think the first one is First Clement. Mm-hmm. You're a fan of First Clement, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I taught through it. Why do you like First Clement so much? Um, I like it because it's, it offered a, it offers a, a glimpse into uh, someone who was directly influenced by an apostle. And into what they had, what they thought, what they had to say to the church, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, First Clement, even though it's not, it didn't make it into the canon of Scripture as we know. Yeah. Um, at least most canons. It, it, you know, I think probably it is in some canons. Maybe the Ethiopian canon. I don't I have to look that up. But, but anyway, um, we don't think of it in. It certainly isn't in the Protestant canon typically. 
Uh, the, um, the first Clement can be thought of as sort of a sequel, non-canonical sequel to the Corinthian letters um, because the book is written to the church at, the, at Corinth. And so it's fascinating that, uh, that you can kind of see uh, what kind of what happens to an early church after, after the Pauline letters. Okay. Sent to that church, and so you can kind of get a get a picture of some of the issues they were, they still dealt with, and what happened thereafter with the Corinthians. Um, That's interesting that you brought that up because mm-hmm. we, Doctor Barton and I, actually talked about that a little bit. Um, we talked about. I yeah, haven't had a chance to listen to that yet. But well, anyway. it's it's just a small part of the conversation, but but we we talk about how when you read a letter in the New Testament, it's only one part of an ongoing conversation. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, so when right. Paul writes First Corinthians, he's responding to a letter that he got, mm-hmm. and then there were probably other letters that were sent back and yeah. forth. Yeah, um, uh-huh. so we're only getting to listen in on one part of the conversation. Right. So right. this is interesting. What you're talking about is multiple letters being sent over months and mm-hmm. months. Different church leaders, um, authority is changing hands. Right. And you right. see more of the timeline by reading some of these early church leaders. Mm-hmm. For yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. And you see that that the correspondence. With these churches, as you're saying, it was ongoing. It kept. It, it was a. It was a very living, breathing thing yeah. that went on for a long time, and and so you know, looking back when we read, you know, because we're so far in the future from these events, you know, we tend to only see the snippets. You know, we're we're seeing a tiny, quick snapshot of something that happened, but mm-hmm. it's hard to remember sometimes that this this was a long period of time and. And um, the people that lived then, you know, they kind of, you know, their experience, just like our experience today, was one of a long period, you know, of, of knowing the people in this church and being, uh, you know, being people may have had, you know, kinfolks in that church yeah. and so forth or, uh, you know, and so forth. So, yeah, there, there's definitely a a much longer thing going on there than the snapshot that we see. And so that's one reason that I like things like that, like First Clement, because it it takes you back into that and shows you a little bit more than just that that one or two snapshots that you have. You get to see a little bit more, you know. So yeah, that's yeah, kind of fun, yeah. you know. So we we sort of started to get into this, but what is what is the effect that reading these stories has on you personally as someone very far removed from this time period? Wow, that's, that's a tough question. I mean, like, what, I, you, you seem to find a lot of encouragement in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's, what's encouraging about reading these things? Like, what, what would you get out of it? Yeah. Well, I think... I think it does me good to to simply just the broader scope of being reminded that that our faith is one that's been around for a very long time uh-huh. and that what we do is connected to the ancient past of the yeah. church. Yeah. I think it's important that we that we have that connection and that we realize that we're connected to that. Mm-hmm. I think it's important for Protestants to do that because I think the I think uh I think Catholics and the Orthodox are you, at least you know, to some degree, is probably maybe a little bit more connected to uh, their traditions than Protestants are uh, yeah. in most cases. And so, 
it's good for, I think, Protestants to read and to look back and make those connections to the very early church and uh, and try to glean from that, uh, because you're not going to... Whereas those... Tra- in other traditions, the tradition's built in. You know, the connections are built into the past, but they're not in Protestantism. Yeah. So, because so many of the traditions were thrown off. So, and, you know, however you... Whether you think that's good or bad, um, the bottom line is that it, it's... I think it's a good thing to be reminded that we we're connected to the ancient church and we come from that, you know, ultimately we're in the same, it's the same church, the same capital C church that existed, you know, in the first 100 years, um, in the first century, the uh, first 100 years after Christ. So, um, that's, I think to me, that's important, you know, just being reminded of that, that is extremely encouraging in my faith mm-hmm. to be reminded of that. And, and again, I just because I've grown up in church, I grew up with um, in church life. I've served in church leadership. Uh, I've played a pretty big role in in worship in, in church church life, leading it and participating in it. Um, so I feel like I have a lot invested in church in the church mm-hmm. uh, in terms of a lot of my life and my time, and and so it's important to me. And just like you know anyone else that. You know, if you if you're deeply invested in, um, let's say, take for instance, you're deeply invested in uh, in a specific academic discipline. Maybe you're deeply invested in um, I don't know biology. Okay, and so you may end up wanting to look back at some point into the far past and see that you're connected to uh, you know discoveries that were made long ago and how that's, you know, how that impacts you today and so forth. I think the same concept applies when it comes to the church. This has been my rant about martial arts for some time. Oh, yeah? So people mm-hmm. people think of martial arts only today in terms of practical self-defense, mm-hmm. but that's only at most one half of what's going on yeah. with martial yeah. arts. Yeah. It's, it is tying yourself to a tradition and mm-hmm. a set of disciplines that goes back, in some cases, literally thousands of years. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So if you only think in terms of the rules of the ring, mm-hmm. then you, you, you're you missing out on so much right. of what martial arts is. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's a yeah. good point. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, well, that's, that would make a whole other pot, good podcast, wouldn't it? You know, just talking about the martial arts. Yeah, and... yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've... I've wanted to have one of those soon. I, I want to do it right though. Mm-hmm. So sure. I haven't I haven't I haven't sat down to figure that one out yet, but I definitely do want to talk about it. Macklin and I started to talk about it on one of our first episodes and mm-hmm. realized that it, it deserves its own sure. its own yeah. conversation. So right. yeah. Um but just the adherence to tradition. If you if you only think uh, if, for instance, Aikido is a great example. Aikido was developed during a time when uh, a lot of warfare was done on horseback, mm-hmm. right? So there's an extra emphasis on momentum mm-hmm. and using momentum in self-defense. Right. And in that time period, that's extremely practical. Mm-hmm. It looks less practical today. And mm-hmm. so therefore, it's easy to think of it as a lesser martial art because mm-hmm. of that. Right. Because it's not as day-to-day practical as, say, Brazilian jiu-jitsu or right. something like that. Right, mm-hmm. But that is going on the assumption 
that practical self-defense is the purpose of yeah, doing yeah. Aikido in the first place. Right. And I would right. say that's a faulty assumption. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, you know, the, the, um, I, I guess what I've always understood the purpose of Aikido to be is to, uh, ultimately the goal of Aikido is to, uh, try to subdue an opponent without injuring them specifically. That's a lot of what you're trying to do. Yeah. Uh, so in a way, it's very far removed from the MMA, you mm-hmm. know, mar- mixed right. martial arts and right. things like that. Uh, it's it's very uh, different. So the goals are totally different in Aikido than they are MMA. Yeah, you know? it's a different way of looking at the world. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. you're trying not to injure someone. You're trying right. to keep from injuring them. So of course it's going to look like a, you know, a martial art that isn't, that isn't as effective because mm-hmm. of that, yeah. you know, yeah. it's not as violent. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to look faker. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So to bring that full circle back to church history, mm-hmm. you can say the same thing about, about looking at these old documents. If you're just looking at them from the standpoint of the practical, just avoiding bad teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can do that, mm-hmm. but you're only going to get part of what, of what you could get out of it. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, it makes sense. Um, so what else in here? There's Clement, there's uh, Ignatius, mm-hmm. Barnabas. Some of these I've never read before. Yeah, I, I've I've probably read through all of them, uh, but some of them I've been much more interested in than others. But uh, to me, the most the two most interesting things of the Apostolic Fathers were the Didache and the First Clement. Um, but yeah, there's there's the Shepherd of Hermas. Uh, Have you ever read any of these and you thought, you know what, this is too weird? Um, not really. Uh-uh. Okay. Not really. Now, I think there probably are plenty of people out there that, that might have that reaction uh-huh. to things, you know, in, in the early church fathers. Yeah. But I'm not one of them. It just, it doesn't bother me at all, you know. Uh, First Clement, there's the infamous um, mention of the phoenix in First Clement where he talks about... Uh, there's this bird, you know, in the in the east, and this bird rises up, rises from the dead, and it rises up out of the ashes. And he's talking about this bird as if it really exists, because in his mind, as far as he knows, it did it does exist. It's a far eastern bird, and he's using it as an example to make a point. Uh, yeah, Is he's that... using it to uh, allegorize the the resurrection. Uh-huh. So. Um, and it makes a great allegory of the resurrection. The only problem yeah. is there's no such thing as a phoenix. So, yeah. <laughs> but he didn't know that, you know. Um, but yeah, someone who's who's um, you know s- someone who's reading um, First Clement. If you go into it from the standpoint of looking for scientific accuracy, and you're looking for something that's exactly, uh, you know, it needs to be correct in that way, you're going to be disappointed by things like mm-hmm. that. It's just not gonna. It's not gonna work for you. Uh, you gotta. You gotta go in with a little bit of an open mind and and learn to find the value in things like that, despite the fact that they're not accurate by modern scientific standards. Um, and that's finding value. You know, to some degree that 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 applies to scripture too. And that's that's a much broader conversation we can have if you want. But but I think uh, in terms of church history. Um, yeah, I think there's going to be some people that might find some of some of the things a little a little off-putting or strange. Uh, that being one of them, for example. I actually did want to go there. Uh, apply, oh, okay. Apply okay. these thoughts to yeah. to scripture. Okay. But okay. before we do, real quick, I've got one thought on the phoenix. Sure. I have an idea 
uh, and I, I don't remember ever hearing anyone say this, but I have an idea of where the phoenix might have come from. Okay. What's your theory? It might have been um, uh, shooting stars. Okay. Because shooting stars come back over astronomical cycles. Oh, I it's see. It's not a one-time yeah. event. Yeah, I they're, see. They're predictable. Right. And Meteor storms. And, meteor yeah. storms. Mm-hmm. And they're viewed as firebirds, right? Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. would see one descend and ascend maybe from so. the horizon. Yeah, maybe and it's a right. ball. It's a it's a it's a bright fire thing, and you can tell that it's not a normal star. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so maybe that's how the legend came it, about. I, it could be. Could be. Yeah, it yeah. might have come from that legend. Definitely. So, definitely. In uh-huh. terms of visual experience, they did see a phoenix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If exactly. that's where that came from. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Not that yeah. Clement necessarily had that in mind, but I'm just saying that might have been where the story originally right. came from. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. Something you could predictably see in the sky you would know when it's coming. Right. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So do you apply those same rules to scripture? To some degree. Um, but, and, and I'll, you know, just to, just to be clear, you know, scripture is authoritative. So that's the difference. But, um, but at the same time, you know, there's nothing wrong with noting the fact that there are some things in Scripture that may that may not be scientifically accurate. It's it, it's okay, you know. You're not going to go to hell for that. It's uh, yeah. it, it's it's okay to uh, to uh, note those things and to and to because I mean, if if God intends for scriptures to be um, used and intends that to be the word of God today in this in this era, um, then, you know, he means for it to be relevant to this era. And so we have to have that conversation, I think, in uh in when it comes to the scriptures. Uh that that has to be a part of it. So there's nothing wrong with with realizing that. Uh I think where I think where people go wrong is that people sometimes believe that the fact that the scriptures might not always be scientifically accurate or doesn't doesn't uh, square with what we know about science they believe that removes some of its grounds for being the of uh, the authority well that's the only that's the only <clears throat> grounds that we know of in our day and age yeah secularly yeah yeah mm-hmm. i mean yeah. that's that's what we're we're trained to to view history in that way and right. science in that way and right. we mm-hmm. have a very materialistic view of the world. Sure, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And so um, so it's very hard for, you know, obviously, you know, in the modern world, in this day and time, you know, one of the criticisms of faith is that it, it, it uh, you know, in, in the mind of the skeptic, you know, it embraces things that aren't proven scientifically, or that, you know, they, they, might, they would even say uh, goes against what we believe scientifically or see scientifically, I don't know that I would go that far, but uh, because I think there's, I think there's plenty, uh, there's so much still in science that is unknowable. Yeah, and uh, and matters of faith fall under that. Um, now I, that said, one could make the argument that there are there's plenty of things that the church in the past believed was unknowable, but that scientifically we do know now. You know, or that the the church believed one thing and believed it very strongly, 
uh, so much so that it, you know, you got in trouble if you said otherwise. But now we know for a fact science is totally different. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, that's why Galileo got in trouble, you know, right. things like that. Right. So, um, so that, you know, that's something to keep in mind when you when you get into matters of of um, when when you start looking at scripture from the standpoint of trying to be a science book, you're you're going to get into trouble. You just really are. It's going to be an issue. Uh, now, obviously, there's some parts of Scripture that are more uh, contentious on this matter than others. Obviously, the, the creation story of Genesis, you know, people, that that's where the rubber meets the road, right? You know, and when it comes to uh, science and, and so forth, uh, or things like Noah's flood, or, uh, you know, the uh, the miracle, miracle stories, or... Uh, when the sun stood still in the sky, you know, yeah. how's that, how does that square with science? How does it square with astronomy? And, and it, it totally doesn't. Let's be honest. It doesn't. Right. So um, what do you do with that? And that's sort of the, that's sort of where those questions really come into play. But I think the, the, I think the question also needs to be, well, what does it mean if it doesn't square with science? What is that going to mean for you? Does that mean you're going to throw out all the rest of Scripture? And if so, why? Why should you throw out the rest of Scripture just because you find one thing that doesn't square with science? Um, and I don't really have a good answer for that because I don't think there's any reason to. Um, I, you know, now the someone who's trying to play devil's advocate would say, well, you know, if you do that, how do you know what parts to take as serious and what parts not, and so what parts to question and what not? Uh, I don't know. You know, that's that's a that conversation could go, could go on forever. But I, I just think that um, I just I can only speak for myself. And, my, and for me, you know, my religious experience jibes with what Scripture has taught, what Scripture says about Christ and the Holy Spirit and so forth. And it's all there. And um, so, even if there's things that don't that don't square scientifically. That doesn't necessarily mean I want to throw out the Bible as the authority of truth in my life. Now, when I say truth, what I mean by that is what I mean by that is spiritual truth. It's truth when it comes to what it has to say about God, what it has to say about the nature of God, what God is, what God is doing, and and who God is, and the fact that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and so forth. Um, I don't. I'm not necessarily interested in going to the Bible to find out the distance between our star and the nearest star. I don't think you're going to find that in the Bible. You know, I don't think you're going to find in the Bible. Um, you know, things like um, you know the size of the 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 solar system, or you know things like that. It's just you're not going to do that. You're not going to understand. Uh, cellular biology by looking in scripture. It's that's not what it's for. It was never for that purpose. So uh it's the Bible is to reveal things about God. It's to reveal it's God's revelation about himself. To a very specific context. Correct. That is uh-huh. not ours. Right. Right. So the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. It was written to a different audience. Which is who to you? Ancient Israel. Okay. So I'm thinking of Genesis. Okay. Since we okay. use that as, a, as an example. <clears throat> yeah. Um, well, be careful because, you know, you could make the argument that in God's sovereignty, he meant the Bible for us too in today's time. 
when he wrote it. For us. Yeah. Yeah. To us. To also. I mean, I mean, wouldn't wouldn't that be? Uh, I mean, God would know that we would be reading it when he when yeah. he wrote it. You know, yes. when he uh, when he inspired it or whatever. So. Yes, but we have to learn about animal sacrifice in order to understand it. Oh yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's it was written. It was written with a different language and a different culture. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It was definitely written into a culture that is not ours. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, and that culture had no scientists. Yeah, that's, that's, that's probably true. <laughs> so then how do you, I mean, I don't, I don't want this to dominate the conversation, but how do you then approach something like Genesis? So, and what can you can you be more specific? If you're not putting the pressure on the Bible to speak to all scientific matters, mm-hmm. and if if the purpose of the Bible is to teach us about God, mm-hmm. then what do we learn about God from something like Genesis one? We learn that he that he is creator, but we also, if you don't get hung up on trying to find science in it, you can also learn that the days of creation correspond to the tabernacle, uh-huh. that the days of creation correspond to the book of Revelation to some extent. You've done some teaching on this at, at, in church. Um, you learn about connections between the creation account in Genesis to other things in Scripture that you might not know are there, um, and it opens up a whole new world for you in terms of Scripture. You would agree, I would say? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it requires a different lens, a different reading right. lens. Right, that's true, yeah. You have, to put away, you have to put away your modern lens in order to approach it. Right. You have to, yeah. you have to learn to look for the symbols and the clues. Yeah. And you definitely. have to you it's a it's a different genre. Right. There is no modern genre that corresponds to something like Genesis. That's true. I agree. Yeah. It's 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 very different. As you said earlier, you you use the term um I think you said this earlier. Um you use the term reading things symbolically yeah. as opposed to reading them another way. Yeah. And you're right. That is the way the ancient world thought. They thought more that way. They thought more in terms of themes, um, of symbol, and so forth. You know, they when they saw something, it meant something to them. You know, when they when they saw something happen in nature to them, it meant something. Uh, it wasn't just something in and of itself. It meant something else, and um, and so that's the way that the ancient world tended to view things, and, and that's the way they wrote, that's the way they thought, that's the way they read, that's the way that they uh, uh, viewed their, their, their universe. And so you're, you're absolutely right, and I see what you mean when you, when now when you said you know, were talking about the culture. Um, that is the culture the Bible was written into, you're right, uh, originally. And so I think that we've definitely lost a lot of that mm-hmm. by the way that we read Scripture in modern times, uh, we've lost reading in terms of the symbolic, the value of the symbol, you know. And this is something that I, when I've taught on this, I harp on it because I think it's very important that in 
modern Christianity in today's day and time in church church life, we have a real tendency to separate symbol from from what symbol represents uh, in terms of that it's teaching us about both things. And what I mean by that is, okay, for some reason we, we have trouble with the idea that something can be both symbolic and literal at the same time. We have a tendency to think that if something is symbolic, it probably is not literal. And if something is literal, it probably is not symbolic. For some reason we we concoct an either-or scenario on these things in our minds. I'm not sure why that is. I don't know if it's because of modern influences or more tendency of binary thinking or what, but uh, I think it's important not to do that with Scripture. I think you want to read Scripture and history, church history, for example, yeah. uh, from the standpoint of understanding that literal things written about in Scripture often symbolically meant other things too, and vice versa. So you can read, you, you can, you don't have to sacrifice your view that if, if you're someone who is a six-day creationist, okay, um, you don't have to necessarily, you don't have to sacrifice that view in order to, in order to glean and learn the symbolic value of Genesis. But you're not going to find too many people, I, I don't think, that, that think that way. But I think it would be a good idea to think more that way in terms of learning not to, learning not to, um, to have the idea that one can't be one thing with, you know. I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. Well, to use Genesis as an example, okay, one can believe in six day creation mm-hmm. literally as it's written in the first chapter of Genesis, you can. and yeah, also you can. Mm-hmm. believe that. It sets the pattern for the tabernacle Correct. and revelation. Yeah, exactly. That it starts yeah. the symbolic thread. Right, yeah. right. But I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that. Yeah. And um, you know, on the other hand, you know, um, for someone that that doesn't believe in literal six day creation, they believe that it, it pertains to a period of time or whatever. You know, however you want to, however you want to explain it. Um, you know. I don't think that I think we need to be careful that we don't that we don't um get so caught up in the fact that someone doesn't hold to our view scientifically of something or they hold to our view of what we think is science in scripture maybe um that we that we lose sight of the symbolic value. What I mean by that is that I think sometimes we uh, you know modern Modern Christians, particularly since really since the Scopes Monkey Trial, I mean that's you know yeah. modern evolution and so forth, the theory of evolution, all this kind of brought all this to the forefront in the last hundred years, right? Two hundred years and the last hundred fifty years. So um, Darwinism came along, and that was a bit of a sea change in science, right? You know, um, and so in some ways the church has been trying to reckon with that ever since that sea change began. Uh, and so different ways of reckoning with that have come about, you know. Some some would say, okay, well, uh, let's say that the six days of creation, you know, represented epochs or, you know, eons or long period of time. And so if you – so then you're, you're not a, you're a six-day creationist at that point, right? You're, right. you know. Um, well, here's the problem with all that. The problem with all of that is – 
suddenly Genesis has become about that. Right. And it is no longer about the spiritual truths that it was written to teach. Yes. And so we've lost uh, what Genesis was originally about because we've gotten caught up in the last 150 years in this conversation about the fact that it's incompatible with science. So you know, it's become a real problem. And mm-hmm. and we and I think the church is a lot worse off because of it. You know, mm-hmm. I really do. So. For anyone interested, where would you recommend they get started with this? This new way of looking at the ancient stories. Hmm. I mean, how would someone begin to wrap their head around it? Well, that's a good question. Um you might be able to answer that question better than I can, actually. The only thing I can think of is is um, learning about the the four different ways of interpreting scripture. Yeah, the uh, Doctor Bedelford calls that the medieval. I think the medieval way of interpreting scripture. Does he? Uh, yeah, he probably. Uh, yeah, yeah, he probably I think does. it was somebody has said yeah. it's from the. You know, it came about in medieval times. Yeah. Um. But uh, but yeah, there's and I don't. I didn't come to talk about that, yeah, so yeah. I'm having trouble yeah, remembering Yeah, we've gone everything. way off topic. Yeah. <laughs> but it's great. It's but great. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, you, you know, that includes the literal interpretation. It also includes symbolic interpretation. Uh-huh. I believe the third one is eschatological, and the other is Christological, I think. I think those are the four. I could be wrong about that. The moral is in there Is there somewhere. a moral? Yeah. Like allegorical? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Jordan Peterson, he, he emphasizes the moral. Okay. So, like, right, if you want a good right. example of the moral application, yeah, his definitely. lectures on 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 Genesis would be a great place to start with that. Right. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Other than that, I can't think of anything. Well, here here's what's interesting. Um, so one of the one of the church fathers that I that I studied, one of the more recent ones I really delved into for a few months, was Isidore of Seville. And Isidore of Seville... It's quite a name. Yeah, it is. Isn't it? Uh, he, he lived in the five to six hundreds, five hundreds to six hundred. Um, and so he was um, he was probably the, the latest, if definitely one of the latest, may have been the latest church father, the, the, the last of the church fathers. But um, he was, if you're interested in... Um, in seeing someone who was able to ascribe allegorical value in natural things, he was a really good example of that. Okay. Um, Because he basically, he was coming into a time when scientific discovery was starting to be more interesting to people, I think. Um, And I'm not sure why that is, but he was a huge influence on people like the Venerable Bede and people like that. Uh, he wrote a book that's only been recently translated to English, I think in 2016. Uh, it's called On the Nature of Things. And that book, um, what he does in that book, he goes through lots of things that are, he's basically sort of acting as to his readers as someone who's explaining uh, why and how things happen in nature. Um, and of course, you have to remember that you know, church authorities that that was church authorities did that then. You know, they they didn't like you said earlier. I mean, there wasn't wasn't a scientist behind every rock. You know, to yeah. to go find and uh, and to to ask a question of. You couldn't Google. You couldn't uh, do anything like that. The knowledge was hard to come by in that era, and so um, so he wrote 
you know, a good portion of his writings were devoted to this sort of thing. And so on the nature of things, uh, delves into things like stars, planets, um, seasons, uh, rain, you know, the weather, things like that. All of these things are covered, but what's fascinating about it is is that um, it ascri- it always takes he does he does explain it scientifically the best he could in his context, which wasn't always right by what we know today. But okay. he does describe it the best he can. But he also he also gleans spiritual truth from these things. Okay, which is to me the more fascinating thing because he's able to see. Um, he's able to see truth about God in the fact that there's night, in the fact that there's day. You know, he would say that that should remind us, um, you know, the fact that night turns to day should remind us the fact that, you know, we go from from when we God enters our lives, it changed, it, things change, and, and we become full of light in our, in our lives and in our world. Yeah. And uh, so there's a real... There's there's an allegorical teaching there in nature, and nobody nobody thinks that way now. It's just not the way people talk about nature and science. There are tiny little remnants of it. You think so? Sad sad scenes in movies usually have rain. Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. And and the transition from winter to spring is always exciting. Yeah, that's true. But uh-huh. there, those are just. There's just right. a couple examples. Yeah, yeah. just sort of thematic. Yeah. yeah, but you're saying that this guy saw those sort of uh, symbolic truths in everything in nature. I think so. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And he would say that. I think he would say, and Bede would say that Bede wasn't isn't considered a church father, but Isidore would say that uh, that nature, and I think this is scriptural, that nature exists to declare the glory of God. Mm-hmm. So he would say that it's right to see. It's right to see what nature says about God and to, you know, do those things. And so I think that's a good approach. I yeah. think that's a good way to see nature. I mean, if if you're a believer, then, you know, God is the most important thing in your life. Your world revolves around that. Mm-hmm. And so um, things are always point to that, you know. Uh, and, and you're, you know, you... I think you and I had a conversation recently about that we've been hearing a lot more lately about people we know that seem to be losing their faith. Do you mind me getting into this a little yeah, bit? Yeah, let's do it. Let's okay. Do it. So um, I think there's something to be... I think these two conversations uh, cross over a little bit because okay. um, for some people, some people are going to see God in everything. They're going to see God in everything that happens. They're going to see God in everything around them and nature and and everything uh for some people they have trouble seeing god in 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 everything uh to them god is hard to find around them in their lives and the, so that's one thing that i think is valuable about learning to see nature in terms of what it says about god and the fact that it speaks to god the fact that it speaks into us about him is that it, it helps you with your faith. It helps you to, um, it helps you to, I don't know, it just helps in that way, you know, if that makes sense. So That does make sense. Mm-hmm. It's a more, it's a more integrated existence. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. There's no separation at that point between your work life, mm-hmm. your church life, right? Your time in scripture, your time in nature, right? Yeah. The the line between all of those things starts to get blurry. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, you know, we we today we sep- we compartmentalize everything. Yeah. We compartmentalize spiritual matters from physical matters. You know. Uh, very much so, and um, I think there's probably a early church heresy in there somewhere. But anyway, <laughs> when we do that, there but, always is. <laughs> but uh, we do that way too much in our time, and uh, you know this sort of this sort of learning to think the way we're talking about here kind of changes that a little bit. It helps us not to compartmentalize our faith from the natural world so much, and I think yeah. that's a good thing. You've used the analogy of marriage before. I've heard you, when when you talk about this, okay. I heard you Remind say that that. <laughs> that, nature, that marriage is it's a it's a real reality in that it is something that you literally experience, but mm-hmm. it also points to something that is also just as real. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, that's sort of the definition of a sacrament. Yeah, you know, but that's what you're talking about. Yeah, is, yeah, uh-huh. is a way of looking at the world that combines both of those things. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, you know, if if you start seeing the world through the lens of spiritual reality behind it, you know, because of, that it speaks of God, that it, mm-hmm. that it has... You know, I think all of creation becomes a little bit more sacramental, you know, um, and that's, that's, that's a good thing, you know, really. Uh, I'm not saying that they're traditional Christian sacraments. I'm just saying it becomes more sacramental, and that's a good thing. This may be impossible to to dissect, but do you think that you have learned more to think about the world this way because of reading these old stories and these old authors? Oh, yeah. Or do you think yeah. that you already, you found a, a common friend and you already felt that way before? Well, I think there's some of both. Okay. Um, I think I was, I think I'm a little wired that way anyway. Okay. I think that's just the way I'm wired. But, but you know, it, it's been affirming to me to find out that that is the way the patristics tended to think and write and, mm-hmm. and so forth. And it's the way I think Scripture is, you know, was designed, yeah. frankly. Yeah. So to me, I find it affirming to discover that, you know, and it has been affirming in my journey. Um, but yeah, I, I think it could be a little bit of both. I think that, that it's only uh, finding those things in church history in the way that people wrote in writings like Isidore of Seville and others... Um, like again, the Clement and the Phoenix, you know, he's describing a spiritual reality. You know, it's, it speaks to a spiritual reality. Um, finding that in these authors, you know, has I found some encouragement in that, and it's it's helped build it all the more. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know how to read something like Revelation without the symbolic interpretation. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, I yeah, mean, that book, that book's, um, that's a book that lends itself. Uh, you just about have to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In fact, John has to go out of his way sometimes and say, oh, wait, now this means this. Yeah. Just so you don't get too far off track. Right, right. <laughs> and then you got to figure out the rest of it. Exactly, but, yeah. Yeah, so there's that there's that series left behind. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. That uh, is as literal as it could possibly be. Yeah, as literal as it could be. Everything, you know, if, it, if the the book says that there's, you know, flying horses, then the characters in the story actually see flying horses. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just, a, it's a completely different way of looking at the world. Well, and, and another 
another way that people, one way that people I think maybe misuse symbol is that, and, and I'm not trying to knock this necessarily, there may, be, there may be some truth to this, okay? Okay. It depends on your view of prophecy, right? But uh, I've heard, you know, there's the there's the Hal Lindsey approach to, to Revelation that, you know, people have that uh, tends tends to see, okay, well, the the clouds roll back like a scroll. That has to be a mushroom cloud. That's a that's a picture of a modern nuclear explosion. So, you know, the 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 Battle of Armageddon is going to be a nuclear war. You know, that's that's what they come to from that. Yeah. Um, okay. The problem with that is that is that we've gotten off track. We, we're no longer seeing the symbol in Scripture is is teaching us about about God. Right. That's where that's right. where we've lost track there. Right. Uh, you have to you have to keep symbol in Scripture rooted in God. You have to keep it in terms of what it says ultimately about Him. Yeah. If you don't do that, you're going to get into some weird stuff. You're going to get way off track. Right. And uh, and that's exactly what a lot of modern reading of Revelation has done. You know. So in my own experience, in my own reading, I have found that more often than not, symbols in books like Revelation. <coughs> and other weird ones like Song of Solomon, mm-hmm. they almost always have to do with uh, sanctuary imagery. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That's one thing yeah. that I've... I've or if, tabernacle imagery, too. It's all the same. Yeah, Eden, exactly. Eden, yeah. the tabernacle, the temple, yeah. it's all the same thing. Right, And right. that thing is the space where man encounters God. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I have found that if I go into it with that mindset and I try to interpret symbols that way, mm-hmm. I, I usually find something. Yeah. Like, it's usually yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the weird plant and fragrance imagery in Song of Solomon is all related to the tabernacle and the temple. Wow. Um, That's great. Mm-hmm. Everything from the incense, you know, burning uh, near the holy place to... The angels etched into the curtains, hmm. like it's it's all there, mm-hmm. um, and it it completely changed the way that I look at these stories. Yeah, um, yeah. And Revelation is that way too. Uh, the the description of the holy city at the end of the book mm-hmm. is all sanctuary imagery. Wow, and all mm-hmm. a retelling of Genesis and Song of Solomon and the Tabernacle. It all is all in, it's it's all interwoven together. Yeah, so. It's an extremely rich way of looking at the Bible, and it points to your relationship with God, mm-hmm. because it's it's about the space where you encounter God. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. and it's the fulfillment of all of this Old Testament stuff that we don't know how to apply to our lives today. Mm-hmm. Like, temple imagery, I think I did the math at one point, and uh, sanctuary imagery if you count all the different places in the Bible where it shows up, sanctuary imagery is a full fourth of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a ton that of is. the Bible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's got to matter to us personally and practically. Mm-hmm. So without this symbolic way of looking at the Bible, where you apply it to your life, and you, as, as a part of the church, become that dwelling place yeah. where God where God dwells and yeah. where you encounter him. If you don't have that sort of symbolic mindset, I don't know how you encounter that whole fourth of the Bible, because mm-hmm. otherwise it doesn't apply to you. Right, right. So. Why do you think that 
okay, you know, it, it becomes really clear when we get to talking about this that I think this isn't a typical way that you see people read Scripture these days, maybe. Uh, why do you think that is? Why do you think that, that, uh, that that's so atypical? Is it just a lost art? What, you know, what? That's, a, that's a really good question. Um, I do not have an answer. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I will say that there are people talking about it, mm-hmm. but they're not very well known. But it, and it's more in you know corners of academia, right? You know, right. With, and so yeah. yeah. So John Walton <clears throat> would be one example. Mm-hmm. His his stuff is more Old Testament than New Testament, mm-hmm. but he uh, a lot of what I've learned about the tabernacle and the temple has come from him and his yeah. his his more ancient view of mm-hmm. understanding these stories. Um, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think um, I think there's probably a number of of reasons that that's occurred. You know, part of it is just the it's just a result of the fact that the church has existed over such a long period of time, and uh, the mo- modern world just thinks differently than the ancient world. Yeah, and we talked about that a little bit, but. Um, and so, you know, people don't grow up their thought patterns the way people, you know, learn and think uh, as they're growing up and in school and so forth nowadays. They don't have the same thought patterns and learning patterns that people in the ancient world did. I mean, everything, it's, it's a totally different mindset, right? So, um, so you know, that that's part of the reason. Uh, I think, you know, in other words, I guess what I'm trying to say is you can't, we don't want to be too hard on people for not doing not doing it that way because they don't realize that there's a wealth there in Scripture that could be gleaned from otherwise. Uh, but at the same time, I would love to see more of this in our churches. You know, I'd love to see more of it. Uh, what the kind of thing we're talking about, um, reading Scripture in terms of the symbols and what it has to say about about God. And seeing nature that way too, all of this that we're talking about, I would love to see that that happen more in in church life, you know, everyday church church life, and and just more of an everyday thing in Christians' lives. Um, and maybe it will in time, you know, maybe it'll become, maybe that maybe that way of thinking will b- become more, you know, prevalent over time again. I hope so. You yeah. Know. Yeah. Well. We've talked about this a little bit before in other conversations, but this this symbolic view of the world is how I not only approach Scripture, but also approach um, mythology. And, and part of the problem is it's a language problem, because for most people, myth just equals false. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But... Which is very binary thinking. Very binary thinking, yeah. yeah. But we're talking, again, as in the case of Genesis, I'm not necessarily, I'm not necessarily saying that Genesis is the same as Greek mythology. Yeah. That's not what yeah. I'm saying. Right. But there is a genre difference. Mm-hmm. The genre of myth does not have a modern equivalent. And so mm. we... Without encountering this kind of teaching, like what we're talking about, mm-hmm. someone reading mythology 
can only look at it through the lens of fact or fiction. Right. But there's a third option. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and the third exactly. option is what we're discussing right now. Right, yeah. exactly. So mm-hmm. you can apply this to, to uh, most of these ancient stories mm-hmm. that have survived the test of time. And there's something in them that really resonates with us because otherwise they wouldn't have survived. I mean, these yeah. are the stories that have outlasted kingdoms and languages mm-hmm. and millennia. Um, they wouldn't have stuck around if there wasn't something in there for us to glean out of them. Right, so. right. Yeah, and, and so when the ancient, when the person in, in the ancient world hear, heard a story about an apostolic person or a church leader or something having slain a dragon, what did that, you know, let's ask ourselves, what did that mean to that person to hear yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's the first thing they thought about, wait, dragons aren't real. Let's dismiss that altogether. Or I've never seen one. Yeah, something like yeah. That. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, some people along the way didn't react to those stories that way because the stories lasted for thousands of years, right? Mm-hmm. So they've stuck around. And so it's safe to say that, you know, there was other truth in those stories they gleaned from. Um you know, maybe it encouraged them that, um, you know, sticking to the apostolic faith is a way that you could triumph over evil or that the church triumphs over evil. Or maybe you personally sticking to the apostolic faith is a way to, is a way to, um, um, is a way to help you with the problem of sin in your life. Uh, maybe it's sort of an allegorical way to, you know, the serpent being under the heel, you know, in Scripture. Uh, the whole idea of the dragon being slain, you know. Uh, a dragon is a kind of serpent, you know, in a way, you know, in, in a sense. So yeah. um, it's all it's all kind of connected in a way. Yeah. It can be connected, yeah. you know, if you want it to be. So we're talking about a kind of storytelling <clears throat> that that's multi-layered. Sure. Or multi-dimensional. Right, right. Um, now, interestingly, e- interesting because we tend to think only in terms of fact or fiction, actually, the genre of fiction, really good fiction, actually does that too. Okay, yeah. Because mm-hmm. really good fiction is fiction that you can get in the middle of, and you see yourself in it. Right, So right. you actually do insert multiple layers of reality into fiction. Sure. Just without yeah. realizing it. That's true. Um, yeah. So it's kind of ironic that we put that hindrance on these ancient stories, mm-hmm. um, but we expect to get something out of the genre of fiction. Right, right, yeah. You know, there's, there's, there are, there's more than one kind of truth. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There, yeah. Is, there is a mathematical equation kind mm-hmm. of truth, or there is the number itself kind of truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's right. It, it's, it's fascinating. You, you bring up the issue of numbers because I mean, uh, there, there's, there's even, you know, there's numerological symbolism all, yeah. you know, there's that too, yeah. you know, and, uh, even numbers themselves have symbolic meaning, but you know, some people are weirded out by that, you know, they're weirded out by that. Um, and I wonder what it is that that makes people wary of things like that, you know. Um, 
it it might be it might be fear that we're going to get too far away from maybe what they think is the literal meaning of something that it's going to take us too far away from you know what in our mind numbers were really created for you know and yeah. that was to count yeah. uh, or do math so um i don't know you know there's also the risk that you can be wrong yeah that's true yeah i mean mm-hmm. There are plenty of cases where numerology gets weird. Yeah, for sure. Uh-huh. And I don't think either of us would sit here and say that all of numerology is is equal. Absolutely. That's um, right. Yeah. So whenever you get into this the symbolic way of looking at the world, it, I mean, you're going to make mistakes. There, Absolutely. There are mistakes that happen. Right. And just because there's more than one kind of truth, that doesn't mean <clears throat> that everything's relative. That's Far right. Far from it. Right. Yeah. And I think you have to you have to be willing to... You have to be willing to put yourself out there and and not be afraid to find out that you're wrong about something. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, it and I guess I guess there's there is importance and and you know in some ways we have a lot of freedom to do this because of the fact that we hold to very strong tenets of orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. So that frees us up to to see meaning and symbols uh, a lot um you know and maybe that's a maybe that's a good uh, argument to be made for the importance of orthodoxy it protects you against going too far the wrong way but it also frees you up hmm. in some way to uh to read about things you know because you know obviously if your symbol if your symbol if you glean from something in nature that uh that the idea of God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is wrong, then you've 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 gone too far. You've taken something in nature and you've destroyed a tenet of orthodoxy with that. And that's right. way that something's gone wrong at that point, you know. Right. So um so orthodoxy allows it gives us freedom because we know our boundaries. Uh-huh. Know? That's that's good. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Within Within the the the, <clears throat> the fence or the wall, mm-hmm. there's a lot of freedom. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's mm-hmm. a, that's a good way of looking at it. Have you seen have you seen the movie The Secret of Kells? The animated animated. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. There's this scene where the main character goes down, and yes. he's been scared to encounter this thing. Right. All uh-huh. through the movie, he's had nightmares about it. He's been told that it's down there, mm-hmm. but he knows that he needs to get this crystal. Uh huh. It's such a beautiful story. The crystal is the way that he looks at scripture. Oh yeah. It's uh-huh. the it's the lens through which he's going to copy the text right. because he's going to be right. a script writer. Yeah. He's got to go down and get the crystal. And so he goes into this dragon's den mm-hmm. and it's in it's in water. Mm-hmm. Um and so he's swimming around and there's this one-eyed serpent. Yes. And the eye uh-huh. of the serpent is the crystal. And the way that he gets the crystal, I'm going to spoil it now for everybody. <laughs> the way that he gets the crystal is by drawing a circle. Uh-huh. With uh-huh. his piece of chalk, right, and so you think that's ridiculous, but it it makes sense, and you don't think that's ridiculous when you watch it because you somehow resonate mm-hmm. with the symbol, right? You right. even though you can't articulate why it works, you mm-hmm. know it works. Yeah, yeah. But what he's doing is he's using the written word. Mm-hmm. That's right. To create a boundary. Yeah. That the serpent cannot cross. That's right. That's right. And that's how he steals the eye. Yeah. So you could you so let, let's say it this way by drawing uh, a fence around where nature can take you. Mhm. 
mm-hmm. you can acquire great beauty from that. That's right. Uh-huh. Like you can steal from nature once you have created the borders of where it can go. Right. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, and I love that movie, and that's uh, that's that's a great description of that scene. Um, I think that's right on in terms of what that what the symbolism there. I love yeah, that. I yeah. just got all excited. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, you mentioned dragons earlier. Yeah, I'm going to say something that's pretty far out. Uh oh. I agree that these dragon stories are to be viewed symbolically, and they resonate with us on a deep. Uh, almost psychological level. Mm-hmm. There's something in those stories that that resonates regardless of whether they're factually true or not. Yeah. That said, I find it odd that every single culture all over the world has a dragon story. You're right, yeah. And people love their dragons. People love their dragons. Uh, Game of Thrones, man. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it's dragons yeah. are dragons every, are all in culture. And, every story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything. Yeah. Uh, and it's not just Western culture. Yeah. It's yeah. all over the planet. Right. Every culture has a dragon. Every culture has a dragon story and a flood story. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. What to make of that? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I yeah. mean, the Bible has a lot to say about floods. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> about a global flood in particular. Right. Um, I. I don't know. I I've I think it's I think it's a hard sell to say that dragons have only ever been fiction. Hmm. I don't know what I mean by that. I don't yeah, know yeah. I don't know where the dragons are. I, I I don't know, but just how could every group of humanity have mm-hmm. the same idea? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't yeah. know. Uh, yeah, I, I I agree. Yeah, I agree. I don't know either. Uh, that's that's uh, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and and as we both know, you know the uh, the flood story. Uh, you know, you see many of the elements in the flood story in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Yeah, you know, um, things that you know the skeptic will point to and say, but but looky here, you know. So what's your Reporting can't be true because it appeared here, as if we don't know these things. You know, we're well aware of the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, right. right. So, um, I think the the question. I'm not saying the flood wasn't a literal event. I'm not making that argument um, because I don't. I don't have to make that argument. Yeah. It's not a discussion we have to have. It does not matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. What mattered? Because that's not what. That's not the what scripture. Being a scientifically. Uh, you know, factual thing is not the purpose of scripture. So um, I'm not, I don't have to go there. Yeah. I don't have to, you know, we don't have to play the game. And so um, what I, what I do want to do though, is find out what God has to teach us from the flood story, you know, and what it says about God and what it, what it says about man and what it says, what, you know, what is, what does the flood story tell us about him and about the flood and, and so forth? You know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I haven't, that's not an area that I'm that I've studied probably as much about as you have that particular uh, passage, but um, but that's that goes to what we're talking about, you know. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Is there anywhere else that you want to go with this? <clears throat> Let me think. We've talked about a lot. Um, this has all been an argument for why you should read history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, um, yeah. In church history, you know, um, y- yeah, I think. His, any history can be uh, can speak into the things we're talking about here and speak to the things we're talking about, but 
uh, you know, church history, being about the church, I would just say this, um, because I think we tend to run the rail of reading and looking at the past and church history a certain way, mm-hmm. um, or looking at issues of faith a certain way, yeah. church history in particular, reading early church history especially, uh, can challenge that a little bit and help us to get outside the box in good ways yeah. um, to um, to do that. So yeah, that's that's my plug for church history right there. Uh, I think it's useful in that way. It, it does open your mind to more uh, reading more symbolically and thinking that way a little bit. Um, it's not all that way, yeah. but but it yeah. definitely helps in that regard, and uh, it helps. It's definitely helped me, and I think this is part of what you can come to from this very conversation. Reading and church history and how the church fathers did things will help you learn to read scripture, which is. The very reason we res- we went from church history into a discussion of scripture, yeah, yeah. and so um, there's something to that. Um, learning how the early church fathers approached scripture, scriptural matters, and the world around them, all yeah. of that uh, will speak into how we can read scripture in a better way. Yeah, so I yeah. think that's, that's this important. has been great. This is why I wanted to have you on because this is this is a view of history that goes beyond hard data. Mm. This is. This is living and breathing stuff. So, yeah, yeah, I I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on this. Well, thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah, this was fun. All right, signing out.